Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome back Kevin Sowers, President of Johns Hopkins Health System and Executive Vice President of Johns Hopkins Medicine. Kevin, thanks for staying around and thanks for being back with us. Tom, thank you for all your support. You know, the last time that we were together, we were we were talking about uh, global budgeted revenue, uh, or GBR as we call it, in the Maryland rate-regulated system. And uh, I was fascinated by your characterization of that, that uh, all-in global budgeted revenue, giving you the flexibility and the wherewithal to invest in the kind of the long view in, in a patient's well-being rather than... Uh, the piecemeal way that we we tend to do things. Let's touch base on that again. You'll recall, Kevin, from uh, some of our earlier research that you know we called attention to the fact the Pareto principle of of twenty uh, percent of the population accounting for eighty percent of the spend, and that that was a, in large measure a lot of complex and chronic episodes of care. When you think of these chronic and complex patients, how does the GBR give you the ability with your revenue being a little more fungible, give you the ability to be creative? So, Tom, you know, I have the ability to to compare and contrast because in the old hospital payment system that I left, um, and still others in the country are involved in it, you know, the financial incentive was to do more, more procedures, more imaging, uh, more scans, more care. Um, but one of the unique features about coming to Maryland is you actually get a pot of money that is your global budget for each of your hospitals. And over that year, you have to decide how you're going to spend that um, to care for the people who come uh, to your organization. And it's not just focused on a payer system that's consistent with all payers of what you charge, but there's also quality metrics that you have to achieve and patient satisfaction metrics that you have to achieve. And so there are ways that when we begin to think about shifting the care that's previously been provided in hospitals, you really have to think through how you partner with your your home care group, your ambulatory services, and have you built out enough ambulatory services in the right locations? Even how have you built your primary care practices? And, and one of the things that we have been talking about over the last year and a half is, do we begin to build primary care practice that are chronic illness focused um, where you may put a Medicare population in or a Medicaid population or those dual eligibles. Uh, because as you look at some of these models across the country, they have shown that as you redesign uh, primary care and get these folks into primary care, you can make huge impacts on uh, utilization patterns. And so it, it really does force you to think not, not you know, 10 years from now, I'd like to, to be there. Uh, it forces you to think about that now. And how do you redesign the way you deliver care now? Yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated by that point. Uh, coming out of our research this year, we uh, identified one of the kind of big changes that that we think may come out of the pandemic and what was the possible 
what we call the intensification of a primary care practice. And by intensification, we mean um, increasing the acuity of the patients in a panel. So in the old days, you might see a primary care practice where each physician would have 2,000 or 2,200 relatively healthy uh, patients, and then they would fit in around them uh, their their chronic and complex patients, and it and it was quite literally that that the the chronically ill were being fit in around uh, the healthy population. And we've been wondering for quite some time, and I'm fascinated by you bringing it up. We've been wondering for quite some time whether there might be a better model in which primary care physician practices were organized around a smaller number of sicker patients, where the attention that was given to those folks was more continuous. Rather than fitting them in where, they, where you could fit them in, you actually focused uh, the practice on their needs. Is that getting to the point that you were making? Yes. And in fact, Tom, there's, there's other things you have to think about as you start redesigning your primary care practices. Number one, your, your scheduling slots are not 10 to 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You actually sometimes make them a half hour to 45 minutes, depending upon the complexity. Um, the other thing you have to think about is what are the wraparound services you, as you begin to consolidate these uh, hard-to-manage patients? Um, you include social work in that practice. It's not uncommon to see a pharmacist within that practice. You also include um, sometimes uh, someone with mental health experience in the practice. So the question is, what's the wraparound services so that you are able to to effectively team manage uh, that patient. And it's not all on the back of the primary care provider, but you've built a team for these high-risk patients to help manage them um, and communicate more effectively across the system. You know, I've always said that one of the things that leads to an ER visit is if you have a patient with chronic illness and they come into your ER, and you and I both know, Tom, that most of these folks have more than one chronic illness, and you're sitting in front of the ER doc and they go, boy, this person looks really sick. And the ER doc is responding to what they're seeing in the moment. But if you brought that primary care provider and put them in front of the patient, they would say, oh, this person's doing pretty well compared to their last visit. And so there's there's stark contrast of how you see that patient in a moment in time. And I think the question we have to answer as we further approach the redesign of primary care is, how do we create those contact moments through telemedicine and use technology to better manage that moment so that you might avoid a hospitalization? And so it's just not about designing uh, how the physician interacts with the patient. It's actually looking at a team approach and a system approach that will deliver better care to the patient. You know, I feel like I went to sleep, started to dream, woke up, and, and I'm there. I've been struggling for years to articulate this idea, and, and you're articulating it from the perspective of, of working on it. I'm thrilled to hear it. Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that we as a, as a health system, the larger health system, we tend to try and, and find uh, situations where we try to make the patient use our system better. Let me give you an example. So we've we've got these these complex, chronically ill patients, and they're in the process of decompensating, and and uh, we realize, gee, uh, they're missing their appointments, and so 
sometimes our answer to that is let's get them a ride. Let's get them a lift uh, voucher or we'll get them a taxi or whatever the case might be. Let's make it easier for them to come in and keep their appointment. When in fact, most patients who are in, in those situations don't decompensate conveniently on the second Tuesday of next month when they have an appointment. So one of the things that I've always wondered was why do we force the chronically ill patient to fit into a into a regimented uh, appointment structure when in fact what we really need is the flexibility to see them on the fly when they need to be seen. Are you guys working in in that direction too? So so one of the unique things Tom about what you just said, one of the things that drives primary care outside is really the more they do, the better they do. And so if you think about the incentives for us, we can partner with our primary care practices, us, the hospitals, to design new models and help support those models um, to, to innovate and transform the way we do it. And you're allowed to do that through GBR. And so um, that's a part of especially when you start looking at not just not Medicare fee-for-service, but you look around at your dual eligibles and also your Medicare Advantage, um, there are often some very complex patients in terms of case mix index of, of patients that you'll see within those primary care practices with Medicare Advantage. And so the question really becomes is how do you design the system to manage them, not I mean, where they live versus expecting them to come where you live and manage them because it's not realistic in thinking that way in, in terms of how you deal with some of the social determinants and other things that begin to drive um, some of the utilization patterns that you see in, in these patient populations. That's fascinating. You know, when we chatted earlier this year, Kevin, you were part of our, our research uh, pr project, and I, I got on the phone with you during the early parts of the pandemic to ask you uh, to help us understand what was going on. And one of the things that I remember talking to you about was that you were convinced that the, uh, the GBR, the, the Global Budgeted Revenue System, allowed you or gave you better incentives to move where you did to, to – uh, to, to other settings. In other words, you'd, you'd take lower acuity services and put them into a lower uh, cost setting. Is there an example or two that you could share with us of how that works? Yeah, and it's it's an interesting one. So especially if you act as an integrated delivery system. So under GBR, if I move a part of my services to the outpatient setting, let's say I'm going to move um, urology procedures that are currently being done on the inpatient side, and I'm now going to move them to an ambulatory procedure area or ambulatory surgery center. As a hospital, I get to keep 50% of my total cost that went towards that population. Now, in my prior life, when I moved to something out that, I got to keep nothing. But it, it's a part of the incentive model and an all-payer model that rewards you for doing the right thing. Now, as a system, you're going to now charge for the unregulated cost, and you will be overall reimbursed less, but you got to keep some back in the hospital side that will help offset some of that loss that you, if you didn't have uh, that at all. Because you either backfill with another patient with a higher acuity level, 
Or if you can't backfill, then you have that 50%. And so um, there are mechanisms within it that allow you to act a little differently than you would in a in a uh, payer, private payer, um, government payer kind of relationship. Let's talk about mental health for a second. I have a family member with a mental health uh, situation that makes me completely sensitive to the fact that as a country, we struggle with uh, with mental health care systems. How does the payment system in Maryland address mental health better than you've seen it addressed in other settings? Well, um, first of all, Tom, I was uh, surprised that when I arrived here that we had the number of inpatient psych beds that we have. Um, and that is because we get reimbursed for mental health here in, in the all-payer model. Secondly, I was talking to you about these transformational grants. And, and while we have the inpatient units, the question is, how do you build more outpatient capacity. So we just received a $45 million grant from the HSCRC, and it's one of their transformational grants that really begin to address the gaps in Maryland's behavioral health system. Um, and it's being driven by the hospitals. Um, because even though we have these inpatient psych units, we still have trouble with our ERs being overwhelmed, uh, and especially with patients who have dual and triple diagnoses, um, either mental health substance abuse or mental health substance abuse and some chronic illness. And so often you're you're treating all of those at the same time. And through this multi-hospital, and it's actually a multi-jurisdictional collaboration, we're expanding what's called um, behavioral health crisis services. And we've looked at an evidence-based model that uh, has been executed on in Georgia and Arizona, and it's called Crisis Now. And we'll be implementing what what I call a, a care traffic control system, which is a high-tech uh, crisis hotline and referral system, and it actually allows for mobile crisis teams across all jurisdictions and expands access for uh, psychiatric patients to have same-day access for uh, behavioral health services. And so there will be a single managed service organization to oversee the work and, and the cultural changes. But what I'm most excited about is to watch and see what happens with our ER utilization in all the areas that we're going to cover. And this will certainly help us get patients into the care models that they need and kind of really be yet another transformational grant that allows us to think about how we deliver care differently and yet decrease the total cost of care that's being seen in our hospitals. And so I'm pleased to be a part of this with our team, and I've got to thank our team for putting this together. But um, it's yet another incredible opportunity to be creative and innovative in thinking differently about how you uh, get patients the care they need in the communities in which they live, but not requiring them to come to the hospital. You know, one of the things that we see uh, coming out of this pandemic is is the uh, the traction that virtual care is, has has begun to show. Nowhere more than in mental health. Will the virtual platform help you in that regard, in terms of your grant proposal and and what you have in mind? That is what we hope, Tom. Because I think on the back end of this pandemic, we're only going to see more disease burden as it relates to uh, mental health issues. I think you're right. You know, if we were to think conceptually and not 
not get bogged down too much by the mechanics. Is there an advantage or two that you think that the country might enjoy if we were all to uh, embrace rather than avoid uh, a rate-regulated financing system? Well, you know, COVID has certainly highlighted one example for us, Tom, um, uh, and really highlights the advantages of a rate-regulated financing system. During COVID, hospitals around the country experienced millions and sometimes even billions of dollars of lost revenue during the early stages where we had to cancel surgeries and procedures. But because Maryland hospitals are under GBR, revenues remain stable even when we had a sharp decline in volumes. Because once again, you get your GBR, and that was a stabilizing factor for Maryland hospitals. Um, Now, it's unique for people who have only grown up in Maryland. Not everybody saw it that way, but I had to remind people that when everything goes away in the rest of the country, there is not a revenue stream that continues to support you. So I, I do believe it was a protection mechanism that was in place to keep the hospitals in Maryland viable during something that was unprecedented in, in our lifetimes. Uh, but I also know that social costs such as uncompensated care, bad debt, graduate medical education is also included in the all-payer system. So all payers are paying for that. It's not one payer's disadvantaged for that. You know, as I said in the very beginning in our first podcast together, there are certainly challenges with every payer model. So I want to be clear on that. No payer model that I've interacted with is is perfect. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we continue to work through here in the state is As you think about academic medical centers, how do they fit into this all-payer model? And how do you pay for innovation in this all-payer model? Uh, It's one of the ongoing discussions I've had since I've arrived in Maryland is is the whole concept of innovation and how it's funded through a GBR. Because you and I both know and have done this long enough that uh, innovation can cause huge swings um, in in costs. Uh, And when you're in the other payer world, you negotiate that. But when you're here, there's an all-rate system uh, that you have to interact with. So I, I would say there are more positives for me as I think about this um, than negatives. And you're always going to have to work through mechanical issues of policy uh, when you're interacting with any payer model. And so um, th- that's one of the things that I kind of move back from at a 30,000 feet and really say, what's the benefit of this model versus what are the technical capabilities that would make it even better? That's great. And and that's why I wanted to stay conceptual and not get lost in, in the mechanics. The mechanics will always be tinkered with no matter what we're, we're dealing with. But it just strikes me that conceptually, your system is, is one that has a, a leg up uh, in, in terms of, of just starting out by aligning things uh, better than, than the traditional one. You know, I've, I've known you for 20 years, and uh, I've, I've come to visit you uh, as many times as you'd be nice enough to have me. You were always very generous with your time, and in fact, I can remember walking and, and doing rounds with you. One of the most admirable characteristics of, of your management style is, is your compassion. When you walk the halls 
I could tell that folks knew that you cared about them and about their patients. Close by telling us how you've brought your experience in oncology nursing into the executive suite in a way that has translated into inspirational behavior modeling. So, Tom, thank you for that question. And I would tell you that um, there there are two lessons I would focus on. First of all, um, being with patients at end of life teaches you that everything else uh, that you think is bad is happening. Um, you don't know what bad looks like until you're standing there at the bedside watching the pain and suffering that a patient and family go through at a time of loss. And so I'm always mindful of that as a leader, that when when I'm dealing with issues that people are escalating to, um, I, I, I always say, you know, you don't have cancer. No one's holding a gun to your head. Uh, <laughs> let's stop and think through this, which takes me to the, the second lesson that um, I learned. And it was when I was a charge nurse uh, one night on, uh, and I'd only been out of, of nursing school for six months. And I don't recommend this, but it was during a nursing shortage and they had no choice. But it was one of those nights where there was a code on team one and then there was a code on team two. And as the charge nurse, I was running back and forth like a chicken with its head cut off, trying to manage both codes. And there was a, he was the dean of students at UNC at the time. And uh, his wife was dying of breast cancer. And uh, that night, after everything had settled down, he was had been standing out in the hall watching me. And he called me over and he said, Kevin, he said, I, I need to teach you a really important lesson. He said, you know, he said, tonight you've got to learn that crazy people will make you feel crazy only if you let them. And he said, the chaos and the craziness became a part of you and you weren't leading tonight. He said, what leaders do is they rise above that moment of chaos and they look at the facts and they listen to the emotions, but they don't respond to the emotions. Because when you become a part of the emotions, you become a part of the problem. And he said, what you've got to do as a leader is rise above that chaos, listen to the people who are feeling the emotions, but respond to the moment with facts. And he said, that will get you through many a difficult situations. And you know, Tom, today in all of my leadership opportunities, I'm always reminded of that story of the importance and value of listening to people and and where they're coming from, but assuring as a leader that you're being fair and consistent with the facts and how you develop the strategies to move the organization forward. Well, I have the great good fortune of having seen it uh, in your case uh, personally for a long, long time. And I've, I've watched you rise above the chaos and, and keep your wits about you. And you've, you've, you've been an inspiration. You know, your success at Duke and now your experience in Maryland with the all-payer rate regulated situation has been just a, once in a very rare occasion for us, a, a chance to think outside the box uh, and to think about uh, alternatives to the normal way that we do things. And I'm really sure that our listeners have appreciated the chance to hear you. But I've been listening to you for a long, long time, and I'm smarter every time I I finish a conversation with you. So thanks for being with us. You're a dear friend. Thank you, Tom, for having me. And thank you for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations, found them thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.